Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The only jail for women in Berkshire County, Massachusetts, is actually in the county next door. How do you do anything complex when your client is, you know, two hours away? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We discuss the challenges facing incarcerated women and their families in western Massachusetts, plus why Southeast Asian refugees may be especially vulnerable to gambling addiction. You get involved in this activity that is fun, and every once in a while you make it big. And anxiety is increasing among some Vietnamese communities in the country as the Trump administration works to renegotiate a long-standing agreement between the two countries. I've heard that if you were here before 1995, then you wouldn't be deported. But then I just learned today that it's not a law. And have you ever eaten razor clams, slipper limpets, or periwinkles? A new cookbook teaches you how. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankosky. President Donald Trump's declaration of a national emergency at the country's southern border was greeted with swift opposition. Sixteen states, including Connecticut and Maine, have filed a lawsuit against the administration's attempt to fund the building of a wall along the United States border with Mexico. Maine Attorney General Aaron Frey told Maine Public that the fundamental concern is the president violated the separation of powers clause of the Constitution. This is about diverting money that Congress has already appropriated to a project that Congress had the opportunity to consider and decided not to appropriate money to. And Frey says nearly $160 million appropriated for projects in Maine could be diverted and that could hurt the state's economy. Connecticut's Attorney General, William Tong, is also concerned about the administration's move to divert money away from other projects to pay for a border wall. He said, I'm going to target military construction money, I'm going to target drug interdiction money, I'm going to target drug forfeiture money. Millions of dollars that Connecticut relies on, along with 15 other states, and I would say probably a lot more than the 16 that have already filed suit rely on that money. President Trump has tweeted that he believes the suit is political, and he expects to win it in the end. There were also rallies held around the region, with protesters voicing their opposition to President Trump's declaration of a national emergency. Maine's Democratic State Representative Michael Sylvester says the protests show many Americans are opposed to divisive policies. We're out here to say that the only thing that that, uh, makes this country great is if we unite, uh, if our policies help everybody, and if uh, we don't uh, work out of fear, but rather out of a a sense of uh, commonality. Funding the president's border wall is one of the many immigration-related debates defining the Trump administration. Another one, the role of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, in local communities. 
Towns and cities across New England have taken steps to adopt so-called sanctuary city policies aimed at reducing cooperation between local police and ICE. But some of the states in the region still cooperate with ICE when it comes to jailing immigrant detainees. To talk more about the partnerships between ICE and county sheriffs, we're joined now by Sarah Sherman-Stokes. She's an immigration attorney and associate director of Boston University's Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Clinic. Sarah, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. We spent a few months here at WBUR reporting on contracts between several Massachusetts county sheriffs and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. We looked at housing contracts, so just the money that ICE pays these sheriffs to house immigrant detainees. Are you familiar with that report? Absolutely. Yeah. So you know that we found four county sheriffs here in Massachusetts brought close to $40 million dollars into the state's general fund over two years by housing ICE inmates. First of all, I guess I just want to hear from you. Are you surprised at all by that dollar figure um, around how much the sheriffs are bringing into the state? Yes and no. I mean, I've myself been to a number of these facilities. Right. Um, I've seen the number of immigrant detainees who are held there. And so I'm I'm not surprised that that kind of money is coming in. The fees range from a high of $98 a day to, you know, a low of, I think, eight, you know, $90 yeah. a day. You know, whether what I saw merits that kind of payment is another question, but I'm not terribly surprised by that number yeah. figure. Yeah. As... We mentioned pretty much ever since President Trump was elected, there have been some grassroots efforts by community members trying to sort of fortify trust with immigrant neighbors by saying, look, we don't want our police cooperating with ICE. But what, from your perspective, working in, in these communities, what do you think it says when, particularly in Massachusetts, people are saying, we want to take a stance here, and yet contracts with ICE at the state level go untouched? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think it's complicated. Um, We've seen across the country, as you mentioned, a number of cities, localities, and municipalities saying we're not going to cooperate with ICE. And that's been a powerful political tool. Um, It's been a powerful legal tool, although it doesn't mean zero ICE enforcement. And similarly here in Massachusetts, you know, there is a huge immigrant community. There's an immigrant advocate and activist presence uh, in the state um, that has pushed for, you know, some really good things for immigrant, our immigrant neighbors and for all of our communities to keep all of our communities as safe and and peaceful as possible. But I think the challenge is, you know, what we've seen in other places in Sacramento, California, and in Hudson, New York, is that when the community pushes for an end to the ICE contract, the result is not exactly um, the end of immigration enforcement, right? Mm. The, The result is that immigrant detainees get moved into facilities that are far away from legal representation, far away from family, and far away from advocates. I see. Interesting. Okay. Well, on that point, I want to um, hear a little bit of uh, what one of the sheriffs we spoke with had to say. Bristol County, Massachusetts, which is right next door to Rhode Island, brings some of the most money into the state through housing ICE detainees to the tune of nearly $12 million in, in two years. When we asked Bristol County Sheriff Thomas Hodgson why his facility partners with ICE, here's what he had to say. The reason that we do this is because um, without any kind of regional holding facilities, it means that there's going to be more transportation costs for people in this area to be sent to other parts of the country or states. And um, and that that's an additional federal tax uh, burden. And there's a sentiment, as you mentioned, shared, I guess, among immigration attorneys and maybe even among advocates, like 
maybe there could be some unintended consequences with a push to end ICE detention in in Massachusetts or in the region. You know, can you explain some of the benefits of having uh, facilities in Massachusetts that hold ICE detainees? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I I would start by saying I question the premise of his reasoning, uh, of Sheriff Hodgson's reasoning to begin with. I I, I don't necessarily see the evidence for that contention. Um, At the same time, my concerns are legal and humanitarian. My concerns are not fiscal um, as an advocate and a supporter of immigrant communities. And I don't want to go on record on, you know, saying that I support immigration detention. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. I don't. Um, But I think there has to be a parallel strategy, both of working to dismantle the Um, nationwide immigration detention sort of complex um, to slash, quite frankly, the budget for immigration detention, which is up to $2.8 billion for fiscal year 2019, um, which is totally unprecedented. We're looking at 52,000 beds. So at the same time that we're working to bring those numbers down, the consequences of moving people from New England means much less access to counsel, uh, much less access to family, and less of a likelihood that these people will win their claims for relief, many of which are meritorious. Um, And the reason I say that is because when people are moved, they're predominantly moved to the South, to Mm. Alabama, to Louisiana, to large facilities in remote locations where access to legal counsel is slim to none. Um, There is no universal representation in immigration court. So folks depend on pro bono organizations, pro bono attorneys uh, to do this really hard and time consuming work. And as an advocate, as an attorney, my concern is that my clients will have ready and accessible you know, access to legal counsel. And if my client is in Louisiana, she's not going to have access to legal counsel. And so, you know, I think this is really a multifaceted approach that we have to take as advocates. We have to be intentional and thoughtful about this. Um, we don't want to separate clients from attorneys and from family members and other sources of support that they would have in their local community. But we can also simultaneously work to slash the ICE detention budget or to challenge the ways in which, you know, we engage in broken windows policing in our communities that leads to more and more people getting, you know, detained by ICE. There are things that we can do simultaneously to both uh, stop the the dramatic increase in ICE detention uh, and also keep folks close to legal services so that they can have a fair shake in the immigration removal proceeding. Mm -hmm. And so help us understand a little bit the folks that ICE detains. Do all of these folks have criminal convictions? Not all of the people that immigration detains have criminal records uh, by any means. Uh, In fact, many of them, especially in this administration, um, many folks who are detained are what we might consider sort of low-hanging fruit, people that are undocumented or unauthorized. Perhaps they've overstayed a visa. Uh, Many of them have been in this country for many, many years without running afoul of our criminal laws, Mm. uh, but simply being in civil violation of our immigration laws. And so uh, many of the folks, you know, have longstanding ties to the community, families and other connections here. So, Sarah, we know that Massachusetts isn't the only state in New England to maintain these contracts with ICE. I mean, we know for sure you said you've visited clients in New Hampshire. We know that Vermont has a facility and we're actually in the process right now of expanding some of our records requests to get a better understanding of how the detention of immigrants works throughout the region. But explain to me sort of some of the interactions you've had at some of the other facilities. Sure, certainly. So over the last 
several years um, that I've been practicing immigration law here in Massachusetts. I've had clients at all of the major facilities at Suffolk, Bristol, Plymouth. Up in, I was just recently up in New Hampshire uh, at Stratford visiting clients. And clients are held in a variety of conditions. Many of them feel uh, very jail-like or what we might imagine jail to be like if we're watching you know, television shows or movies. Folks are held in cells. They are subject to the same kinds of restraints on their liberty and movement that someone in criminal custody would be subject to for the most part. They have very limited access to counsel, to lawyers, to their families, um, non-contact visits. It can be very difficult for even a client who's represented by an attorney to be in touch with that attorney on a regular basis. Phone calls are very expensive. And some of these facilities are pretty far from Boston, so they require pro bono attorneys to make an hour, hour and a half drive to see their clients. Sarah Sherman Stokes is an immigration attorney and associate director of Boston University's Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Clinic. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. We turn now from the detention of immigrants to jails for women in western Massachusetts. A new series from the Berkshire Eagle looks at the consequences of women being jailed outside of their home county. The Berkshire County Jail and House of Corrections in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, used to include sections for both men and women. But in 2014, a new unit was built at the Western Regional Women's Correctional Center in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Here with us to discuss how women and men are treated differently by the justice system in Western Massachusetts is Heather Bellow. She's an investigative reporter for the Berkshire Eagle. Heather, welcome to Next. Thank you. So let's start back in 2014. Why were women transferred from the Berkshire County Jail and House of Corrections in Pittsfield to the Western Regional Women's Correctional Center in Chicopee? Well, the sheriff's in the early 2000s had been saying that um, we're running these, you know, predominantly men's jails, we have small numbers of women, and, um, you know, we can't offer all the services and programs that they need, and also we're having trouble with the logistics of keeping men and women separate, which is required by state law. Okay, and so that led to the construction of this separate facility? Well, or in part, it was it was all the sheriffs in Western Massachusetts sort of got together and said, you know, we're really struggling to do this. And it was former Hamden County Sheriff Ash who sort of led the led the charge and, and helped lobby the legislature to allocate money for this jail in Chicopee. Okay, so what's the difference between these two facilities, the one in Pittsfield and the one in Chicopee? Well, Right now, the one in Pittsfield is all male. And back before women went to the Chicopee Jail, um, they did have a women's pod, but they were finding that it was just very difficult to keep the women and men separate and that women were sort of being cast aside a little bit. They, they weren't getting all the programs and all the things that the men were getting. And so all the sheriffs in, the, in Western Massachusetts said, you know, we're all having this problem because we're running predominantly men's jails. So Lois Ahrens is is someone you spoke with for your in your reporting um, yes. with the Real Cost of Prisons Project in Northampton. Yes, and she was saying that these are debtors' prisons. What did she mean by that? Well, what she means is that a lot of these women are, I would say, the majority are they're poor. They have substance abuse problems. 
they have been abused sexually, they're tangled up in sex trafficking, and they're going to jail because they simply can't afford to pay bail. Sometimes it's very low, sometimes it's $50. And not only can they not scrounge up the money to to bail themselves out, but they don't know anyone who can help them. So they end up in jail because they're poor. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what sort of legal care or access to to legal resources do these women generally receive? Well, they they have attorneys, they have, you know, court-appointed attorneys and they they struggle because well, in Berkshire County, you know, they're about women are about an hour and so are their attorneys about an hour uh, up to maybe an hour and a half away from the jail. So they do have legal representation, but what we found in our reporting is that attorneys across the board were saying, you know, we are really struggling to provide these women just everything that they need because of the distance, because we have to drive two hours round trip to the jail, then visit with a client, and we're already inundated with caseloads. So attorneys are saying this is really compromising their ability to represent these women in the way that they would ultimately like to in an ideal situation, which would be if the jail were closer. Let's hear a bit from Pittsfield-based attorney Joseph Zlatnik. How do you do anything complex when your client is, you know, two hours away? And the larger issue becomes, you know, so for example, if if I want to... um, to have a witness involved where I have to run in and out of jail, talk to the person, run out, talk to the witness, then run back in, talk to the person. How can I set that up when the witness is in Berkshire County and the client is in Chicopee? It's it's a very challenging thing. Yeah, so you can hear a concrete mm-hmm. example there of what you were just talking about. Your reporting also mentions not just the challenges facing lawyers and, and the legal representation associated with these women, but also the distance for family members and how that can have a, a really adverse effect on some of the inmates being held in Chicopee, right? Absolutely. We did find that it does create, it can create a logistical nightmare. If you're poor, if you don't have a car, it's really daunting and you're in a different county. And if you just take a look at the, you know, the Peter Pan bus schedule or the uh, the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority and you try to connect those two, you can see how hard it is for people who who don't have resources. Yeah, and of course it doesn't help mm-hmm. that public transit options in that region of the state are not readily available. So the burden, I mean, Peter Pan, you mentioned, is a commercial bus line, right? You have to come up with the money to be able to buy a ticket. One of the other things that you mentioned is the costs associated with long-distance phone calls, which is something that might not immediately be thought of as as a cost associated or or burden that the inmate has to bear, but, but it is, right? Well, yes. You know, the phone systems um, at, at this particular jail in Chicopee, it's, it's 12 cents a minute. It's one of the lower rates in the state. But um, it does add up for people. And, um, and you know, we have to remember that this is a population of people who are, you know, really struggling with fallout from poverty and addiction. Their families are struggling. And, you know, the, the phone system, you know, $50 a week for, for phone calls so that you can really stay connected to your family is, is, is a lot. But we have to remember that uh, many of these women are awaiting trial. They haven't been convicted yet. So all of this, all of these problems are, you know, are exacerbating, uh, making, just worsening all of the, you know, all of these things for, for women and their families. 
Well, let's hear a clip of a video that was released with this series. In it, we're going to hear Wahia Wolfpaw speaking with her daughter, Agent Rowe, who was held in Chicopee at the time. So how about the phone calls? How many, how many, how, how in debt are you in your canteen right now for borrowing to be able to talk? And how much, yeah. How much money do I have to put on my phone to, to pay the other people back that you've borrowed their canteen from? Okay. I got someone that's uh, they owe me money and they might have it today, so I'll put, I'll go throw that on my bank. I have to go take the bus. <laughs> I have to take the bus. It's an hour. It takes me like an hour and a half to put money in my bank. Okay. But is it gonna give us any talk? Is it gonna give us any talk time? Is it gonna give us any talk time of that? Wow. So in that mm-hmm. very short exchange, you hear so many issues encompassed. Mm-hmm. Yes, you really do. Wow. Yeah, well, Hyle Wolfpaw really struggled during the time Agent was in jail. She struggled to figure out a way to get to the jail. She struggled to come up with the money for the phone calls. Uh, it was definitely, definitely a hard time for her. And uh, you talk in your reporting not only about an economic strain, but about the, the high cost of living for inmates in jail. Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, there is money that you don't just get out of um, having to spend money just because you've gone to jail. You you have to keep paying for things. And and actually, it's your family that, that pays or, you know, friends, anyone that can put money on your canteen account. Right. And when we're talking yeah. about all of this happening, you know, a, at a greater distance from where your your family network might be, if you're you know fortunate enough to have a family network to support you, that just sort of compounds things. Is that the idea? Absolutely. And I had one father of of one woman who was in the jail say, and and this is the situation in in all jails. Um, he said, you know, it's more expensive, it's cheaper if I can go to the jail and put the money on her canteen account than it is if I do it from from a distance through the, the phone system. So, you know, so there are there are disadvantages all across the board here. Right. Uh, throughout your reporting, Heather, did you find, you know, that there were stark inequalities in the way that the system of justice is, is treating women and men in Western Massachusetts? The jail itself, you know, this isn't a criticism of the jail itself. The jail itself is trying to provide these women with very good services, trying, you know, trying to help them. And I did meet women who, who were released and said that the jail had really helped them turn a corner. It's just that it has created a distance problem that ultimately, even though it's unintentional, it, it, it does treat women and men differently because men do stay in their home counties. Right. Um, what sort of feedback have you been getting uh, from your reporting? Well, a lot of people have been grateful to know what's going on. There were people who knew what was going on and felt that um, it was an injustice. It is an injustice. But I've had other people say, you know, if these women would just keep their nose clean, you know, they wouldn't have these problems. But, you know, it doesn't really take into account the the fact that uh, many of these people are still awaiting trial. They haven't been convicted. Heather Bellow is an investigative reporter for the Berkshire Eagle. You can find a link to the series Sent Away on nextnewengland.org. Heather, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Coming up, how diversifying the fish you eat can help sustain our fisheries. 
But first, why Southeast Asian refugees are at a higher risk of developing gambling addiction. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankosky. Strokes of good fortune and good luck are highly revered in some Asian cultures, and playing cards and dice at family gatherings and holidays goes back generations. But advocates in the Asian community say that tradition can sometimes lead to a hidden problem, gambling addiction. As Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa De La Torre reports, Southeast Asian refugees who came to the U.S. after the Vietnam War are especially at risk. Quinn Trung still gets a cozy feeling when she sees a hand of cards. Trung came to the U.S. as a kid, a refugee from Vietnam. Her extended family resettled in Connecticut, and when they get together on the weekends, gambling was a way they bonded. Everybody has a roll of quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies that they use, and they bet against each other. And so all the kids are rooting for their parents, and then, you know, we, we kind of check in on them every once in a while. Trong's now a healthcare advocate in Hartford who warns folks about gambling addiction. Connecticut has two of the biggest casinos in the U.S., casinos that cater to Asians with cultural entertainment and translated signs that feel welcoming, Trong says. For Southeast Asian refugees dealing with hard times and trauma from the war, gambling's like an escape. You get involved in this activity that is fun, and every once in a while you make it big and you get a couple hundred dollars and you feel like the king of the world. Of course you're going to go for that, right? If you lose, though, you lose big. Dr. Timothy Fong is a professor of addiction psychiatry at UCLA's Gambling Studies Program. Fong says Southeast Asian refugees are at risk of falling into problem gambling, partly because of their trauma history. The high of gambling is a way of seeking comfort, Fong says. Some refugees also think they can make fast money. Gambling is seen as an opportunity out of poverty. And when you have tremendous amounts of poverty, particularly in the Southeast Asian uh, refugee population, that tends to be a very tempting idea. The numbers back that up. Experts point to a 2003 study led by Yukon Health Center. Researchers focus on almost 100 refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos who were living in Connecticut. They found almost 60 percent of them were addicted to gambling. Which is almost 30 times the national average for gambling addiction. Making matters more complicated, Asians are least likely among ethnic groups in the U.S. to seek mental health services. I met Howard Pengsapong at a Connecticut conference on problem gambling. He's 70 and says he comes from a generation of refugees that carries a lot of stress. But Pengsapong says talking about mental health in this culture is hard. The mental health is, we don't even have the word exist in our Laotian language. If we translate word by word, it's like a, a crazy. Advocates say not wanting to be labeled as crazy or bring shame to one's family is why problem gambling cases tend to be hidden until there's a crisis. Tu and Long survived the killing fields in Cambodia. 
She's now lead case manager for a Hartford clinic that counsels Asian families. It's a stigma. You go into the crazy clinic. So I said, no, it's not a crazy clinic. This is the mental health services, so it can help you. When gambling spirals out of control, experts and advocates say that can lead to suicidal thoughts, bankruptcy, broken families. This is Pengsapon. That's why we try to give a message to our community members just, just to be mindful of the consequences of this gambling. To give that message, the state of Connecticut has turned to Asian ambassadors, immigrants like Pengsapong and Trong, who hold sessions in their communities on the warning signs of problem gambling. Some experts think it could serve as a national model on how to reach minorities on a topic that's considered taboo. It's so sensitive that even the term problem gambling is a problem, says Trong and her Laotian colleague Sue Tamavong. She's also an ambassador. You can't say problem gambling because you hear, you say problem gambling, people are going to be like, nope, not a problem, I'm out. Or if you say, um, I think one we did was uh, financial literacy. Financial literacy. Financial literacy. And it was so good. And there was one little section about gambling and then all of a sudden all these questions came out. The Asian ambassadors say they're not trying to discourage gambling. The important thing is self-awareness, they say. And if gambling gets to be a problem, being able to talk about it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De La Torre. Among other concerns for Southeast Asian refugees living in the U.S. is increasing anxiety when it comes to immigration policies, especially among some Vietnamese immigrants across the country. For more than a year now, the Trump administration has been quietly renegotiating an agreement between the U.S. and Vietnam. The agreement has allowed some Vietnamese immigrants to live here for more than 20 years. It's a Saturday afternoon at a community center in Dorchester. More than a dozen people sit in metal folding chairs, organized in a circle, leaning forward, listening to the free legal advice being offered. Some people are at the workshop alone. Others brought young children with them. They're all part of Dorchester's large Vietnamese community. And like Von Nguyen, they're all here because they're worried. I mean, it's kind of like hitting home because my husband does not have citizenship and he's got a past. So we're unsure. So we're just kind of very nervous, too. Nguyen says she fled Vietnam and came to the U.S. as a refugee in 1980. She's lived in Dorchester since 1996. Nguyen doesn't go into too much detail about her husband's past, but she says she thought her husband, who has a green card in the U.S., was safe from removal back to Vietnam. That is, until she came to this public forum, hosted by immigration advocates. I've heard that if you were here before 1995, then you wouldn't be deported. But then I just learned today that it's not a law. This is a common assumption among many in the Vietnamese-American community. It's based largely on more than a decade of U.S. immigration practice. 1995 marked the normalization of U.S.-Vietnamese diplomatic relations. But the Vietnamese government still generally refused to accept anyone the U.S. was trying to deport. Since people wouldn't be accepted into Vietnam, U.S. immigration officials couldn't deport them. Phi Nguyen, no relation, is litigation director at Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Atlanta. She says a 2008 agreement between the U.S. and Vietnam established parameters for deportation. After years of negotiating, Vietnam essentially agreed to take back people who came to the U.S. after 1995, but not those that came to the U.S. before 1995. 
This is not the same thing as the U.S. government agreeing not to deport pre-1995 arrivals. But it has resulted in thousands of Vietnamese nationals living in the U.S. with final orders of removal, many as a result of criminal convictions. Now, the Trump administration is pressuring Vietnam to take back all Vietnamese nationals ordered deported, regardless of when they entered the country. So we do know that they are steadily increasing the number of people that they're taking back. Court documents from a class action suit filed against ICE in February 2018 cite a verbal agreement reached between the two countries. Vietnam would process travel documents for people who had been found removable from the U.S., regardless of whether they entered the U.S. before 1995. There was no formal change to the 2008 agreement, no announcement of this shift. And yet, a U.S. official confirms that at least 11 Vietnamese nationals who entered the country before 1995 have already been deported back to Vietnam in the last year and a half. In later court filings, an ICE official stated circumstances changed and Vietnam was not expected to repatriate pre-1995 arrivals, but that negotiations would continue. Bethany Lee is director of the Asian Outreach Unit at Greater Boston Legal Services. Lee characterizes the administration's enforcement priorities as going after low-hanging fruit, focusing on people who've already been deemed deportable by an immigration judge. I do think Southeast Asians in particular, so many of them already have final orders of deportation, so they don't necessarily have to go through the same amount of proceedings that others might have to. If a new agreement is negotiated with the Vietnamese government, then this large pool of immigrants, many of whom came to the U.S. as refugees, could be deported. The U.S. could pressure Vietnam through actions like limiting or denying immigrant and tourist visas, as it has done for Cambodia and Laos. Visa sanctions are a common tool used by the U.S. in trying to nudge so-called recalcitrant countries into accepting deportees. In an email, the Department of Homeland Security noted that in May 2016, it had relations with 23 countries it considers recalcitrant. Under the Trump administration, there are only nine. The threat of deportation back to Vietnam feels like a life-and-death situation for some people. Vu has lived in Dorchester for more than 20 years. We agreed to use only his first name because he's in removal proceedings and fears for his safety if he's deported to Vietnam, where he says he faced relentless discrimination. They don't like me because I'm Amerasian. They would tease me and throw rocks at me. Vu was born in Saigon in 1967. His father was a U.S. serviceman in Vietnam during the war. He says his mother abandoned him at a young age, and he came to the U.S. in 1993 and received a green card. Over here, it's much better. No one gives me trouble, no one hassles me, and no one throws rocks at me. Vu was convicted on assault and larceny charges dating back to 2001. Those charges were recently vacated, but not before he was flagged for removal. So the fate of Vu, as someone who arrived before 1995, is unclear. The governments continue to negotiate, meeting as recently as December, according to Phi Nguyen, the Atlanta-based attorney. This uncertainty is what Vu and others facing similar situations find so challenging. I think about it often, and I don't want to be deported. I wouldn't be able to see my children. I would lose everything. 
I would miss most being around my kids. Nguyen says it's the covert nature of the talks that drives much of the anxiety among Vietnamese Americans. A lot of these conversations do happen behind closed doors, and there's always the fear that something could change tomorrow. Immigration attorneys are doing what they can to decipher clues about the status of the 2008 agreement. They are hoping to provide clarity to people like Vu and the thousands of others living in limbo. The Vietnamese embassy did not respond to requests for comment. Katie Waldman is a spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security. In a statement, she said there are 7,000 convicted criminals from Vietnam with final orders of removal. The convictions range from burglary and drug charges to more serious violent crimes. Waldman says removing these Vietnamese nationals is a priority for the Trump administration. Coming up, have you ever eaten razor clams, slipper limpets, or periwinkles? A new cookbook will tell you how. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankosky. Fishing is an important industry for many coastal communities in New England. And as wind farms go up on the coasts, some fishermen are expressing concern over how turbines will affect their livelihoods. The Public's Radio's Avery Brookins attended a hearing in New Bedford on a proposed offshore wind farm south of Martha's Vineyard. Scallopers and lobstermen are worried about the effects the wind farm will have on their ability to fish. Westport lobsterman Timothy Field said that he's worried his group won't have enough of a voice in the matter because there are so few of them. We will get pushed out of the way because in in the big picture, you know, me and maybe 10, 20, 30 lobstermen, that's, that's nothing. And wind farms aren't the only challenge to our region's fisheries. Overfishing is also a major concern. Have you ever eaten razor clams, slipper limpets, butterfish, or periwinkles? Have you ever heard of them? Many of us have our go-to seafood selections. I'm thinking tuna, salmon, lobster, shrimp. But a new cookbook makes the case for changing it up. Simmering the Sea is part cookbook and part field guide for diversifying the fish you eat and in the process, helping to sustain our fisheries. We have two of the book's co-authors here with us today, Kate Mazury and Riz Ahmed. Kate Mazury is the program director of the Rhode Island nonprofit Eating with the Ecosystem and a co-author of Simmering the Sea. Kate, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Chef Rizwan Ahmed. He's a culinary instructor at Johnson & Wales University. Thank you for being with us, Chef Riz. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So, Kate, I'm going to start with you. Simmering the Sea begins with the, quote, story of seafood, and it describes how important different species are to the ecosystem as a whole. Can you give us kind of the big picture of why things like phytoplankton and sea cucumbers are so important to the health of the ocean overall? Yeah, so an ecosystem is really kind of a collection of organisms, 
and their environment, and they all interact with each other. And so when you think about the ocean, there's not just one or two kind of fish in the sea. There's, you know, hundreds of different species, and each species interacts with the habitat that they live in as well as with their predators, with their prey. And so each species really has its kind of own unique role. And so with Simmering the Sea, one of our goals was to really kind of encapsulate the whole the whole food chain <laughs> um, within the cookbook because as consumers, we can also really kind of eat along with the ecosystem and we're actually part of that food chain. But fishing can sort of rewrite the script, as it were, right, and and change which animals thrive. Explain a little bit about how that happens. Yeah. So as humans, have, we've managed in the ocean as well as just on Earth in general, really managed to kind of control and impact our ecosystems in big ways. And some of those ways can have negative consequences. And some of those ways, you know, can have less impact. What happens when when we're fishing is we're targeting typically a certain selection of species and they're going to target the species that they're going to make the most money on. Mm. Um, that's just how it is as a fisherman. Um, you're going to, you're a business. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need to be able to make a living. And so typically our fishermen, they'll go out and they'll target the species that have the most consumer demand. So if we think about kind of what some of those species are, those are the species that we're used to eating as consumers. So those are things like tuna or cod or lobsters or things like that. (laughs) And so, yeah, you target those species. um, And then if there's a fish that you're not really going to get as much money for, you're probably not going to spend as much time targeting that fish or going to fill up your boat with limited space with a fish that you're not going to get very much money for. In the book, you mentioned something that says, you know, we should think about eating like a fish. What what does that mean? <laughs> so this is a phrase that we like to use at eating with the ecosystem. Um, and the idea eating like a fish comes from eating kind of what's available to you in your local waters. And so if you think about how a fish behaves and how a fish eats, they live in kind of a body of water um, in their local ecosystem. And they eat the fish the, or the other organisms that kind of are available to them right there. And so as those organisms change throughout the seasons, they might change their diet as well. As the different kind of species become available to them, they might, you know, take advantage of that and start eating those species that come into kind of their their local area. Um, And so for us, eating like a fish is really eating what's available to you locally and adapting and changing as the ecosystem changes. Got it. It's kind of, it, it just reminded me of like going to like a winter farmer's market and accepting the fact right. that you're not going to find some things there that you would in August, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And you're eating, you know, a diversity of species as well. You're not just eating one fish. You can't, if you're, you know, a fish that is living in the water, you can't just be super picky and select, I'm only going right. to eat this one thing. Instead, yes. you have to be more opportunistic. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like eating eating with the seasons. Right, so exactly. Basically, yeah. you, uh, just like the farmer's market, when you go to a farmer's market, you see what's available and you go accordingly, you buy, buy accordingly to what, what's available at the market. Right. And you have to maybe figure out how to prepare something that you have no idea how to prepare. So Correct. this is perfect. Let's talk about some of these recipes with, mm. with you, Chef Riz. Um, mm. what, what did you think about creating uh, recipes with some of these lesser known sort of under the radar seafood options? Was it intimidating at all? Uh, no, actually, I'm being a chef, right? I've been cooking for about 15 years now. And a lot of these recipes that we provided in the book are very simple recipes, but also a lot of the species that we used, I've used before in my restaurants. And also we uh, use a lot of them at John Snowbells University. So all it was was basically looking at the, at the main ingredients, which is the seafood, uh, making sure that the recipe is delicious, making sure that it's uh, simply made, 
Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's easy for the for the home cook, mm-hmm. and then finally also making sure that we're using local ingredients, and that's why it t- ties back into the farmers market. Right, right. Yeah. So so what are your favorites? Can you walk us through maybe one or two of your favorite recipes? Well, when, when you asked when, when I was asked that before, <laughs> basically all of them are really good. <laughs> but if I had to pick and choose, I love razor clams. They're very sweet and have a mild flavor, okay. and also very easy to prepare. Okay. Um, so we have uh, a recipe in the cookbook called Razor Clams with Faba Bean Salad. Okay. So again, a very simple recipe, uh, straightforward, more of um, a simple steaming of the razor clams, and then a nice toss with the salad. Describe what those look like. I have this image in my head. I think I've seen maybe the shell of a razor clam yes. on the beach. but Yeah, a razor clam shell you might have seen on the beach before, but it looks almost like a straight razor. Yeah, right, um, like, right. old-fashioned razors. Okay, yeah. yep. Um, they've got kind of a pretty brownish, yellowy color, and they're they're sharp actually on the edges, almost like a razor. You actually do have to be careful. The sharp <laughs> and brittle, so they're almost in the same family as cherry stones and little little necks. Okay. But obviously, uh, cherry stones and little little necks, their shells are a little harder. Right. Uh, but razor clams are more are more brittle, so you have to be careful. Also, they they can cut you. Okay, so that's a <laughs> a hazard and to you, consider. <laughs> and you have to you have to hand pick them. You can't use a rake and a shovel. You have I to hand pick. How doable are these recipes to follow for seafood newbies? And I'm asking with a particular person in mind, and that person is my mother because okay. she <laughs> loves seafood, but she always says that she's just intimidated about preparing it. So how do you get people who Maybe, you know, are used to, you know, used to salmon, a, a nice mm. salmon filet and are intimidated to even broil something like that. How do you get convince them to to, you know, steam periwinkles? <laughs> well, that's a, that's what we did in, in the cookbook. When we were first coming up with the initial plans for the cookbook, obviously I was thinking like a chef. So I developed developed a few recipes and I sent them over to Kate and Sarah and they looked at them and they said, listen, this is a little too, a little too difficult. I think we should scale back a bit, make them, make them more simpler. Yeah. And that's what I did. So I went back to the drawing board and then we started off. So to me, when you're actually looking at some of these species, it's almost the same. Just substitute what you have. So if you're, if you're used to cooking cod or cooking salmon, just substitute that with the, with the seafood that we have in the book. Very similar preparations, a nice saute, or if you want to oven bake, you're going to bake a few ones like a sea robin. And sea robin might, if you actually look at the word, the word itself uh, might scare you. But sea robin, again, it's a very simple, simple recipe, um, very easy to use. Uh, again, mild in flavor, very, very similar to fluke or flounder. So okay. if, you're, if you're familiar with cooking fluke or flounder, you apply the same concept to uh, sea robin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really enjoyed about this uh, sort of field book cookbook combo is that I'm learning something, right, beyond new recipes. Like how how do I know I'm buying fresh fish? You talk a little bit about that. What Help our listeners understand what to look for when they're out there buying things. So number one, when you're actually looking for seafood, uh, it should smell of the ocean. It should not smell fishy. Okay. So again, again, a lot of people say, how can we ask a, a fishmonger? I'm like, well, when you're going to go order some fish, ask the, ask the monger if you can actually smell the fish. Mm, okay. that's, num- that's the number one thing I would do. Number two, also, when you press on the on the fish, it should bounce back. Okay. If it stays, stays depressed, then that means it's not. It's probably older than two, three or four days. Okay. And always keep it within within the fresher the better. Up to three days is okay. 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 Majority of the seafood. How do we come across some of the other lesser known species? Are these things you know you can go to your local market and buy, or do you have to put a little more effort into it, maybe? Yeah, so I've actually been interviewing seafood markets as part of this research project that the cookbook, Simmering the Sea, is actually part of. And I've been visiting fish markets all over New England. I'm starting to see 
more of these species actually in our markets. I saw razor clams the other day, mm. skate. Um, I actually saw periwinkles this morning, uh-huh. um, actually in a fish market in Providence. Um, so I am starting to see more of these species within our markets. But what I always tell consumers is if you're shop at, you know, you have a particular favorite fish market and they don't carry the species that you're looking for. Maybe you really want to go and try our grilled squid recipe, or maybe you really want to try the skate recipe that Riz created for the cookbook. Then go and ask at your market for those local species. And from all the research that I've been doing with the fish markets, Almost every single fish market will, has told me, yeah, if a consumer asks for it, I'll order it for them. Because these are local species. A lot of times it's very easy for them to actually get these species sure. and carry them in the market. But the reason that they aren't there currently is because they don't think anybody wants them. And that's a financial risk for them is to bring in a species that there's no demand for. So it seems like sort of the, the sweet spot, if you will, here, according to to the book is sort of shifting the mind frame of consumers so that in turn would shift the demand that fishermen are are feeling and kind of focus less on some of the uh, more stressed species and more on some of the, the more sustainable species. Yeah. So for example, whiting um, is in the book. Another name for that one is silver hake. So it's actually a fish that's in the cod family. It's a very flaky white fish, very mild in flavor, kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. And that's a fish that our fishermen catch quite a bit of. And yet the price for whiting is pretty low. And so a lot of times fishermen don't actually even catch as much whiting as they could as they're allowed to catch under like a sustainable management system mm. because there's just not demand for it. Mm-hmm. And so if by us as consumers going into those markets and asking for whiting, we then create that demand. And so then those the people that supply those markets start asking for it and they then have a market for it to sell. And so... Just by creating demand, we can really help kind of support our local fishing communities. Well, I mean, you guys have given me some confidence here, so I look mm-hmm. forward to, to testing my luck with some of these recipes. Thank you so much for joining us. Kate Masery is the program director of the Rhode Island nonprofit Eating with the Ecosystem and a co-author of Simmering the Sea. Kate, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also with us is Chef Riswan Ahmed. He's a culinary instructor at Johnson & Wales University and a co-author of Simmering the Sea. Riz, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. You can find more information about Simmering the Sea at nextnewengland.org. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Mike Toda, Betsy Cordes, Glenn Alexander, Aaron Reed, and Mike Garth. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York in the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public's Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankosky.